All right, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, uh, looking at the first 16 verses there. If you would all stand together as we read this passage. Acts chapter 20, looking at verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and encouraged them. Uh, I'm sorry, after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from, for Macedonia. When he had gone through the regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, a son of Phurus, accompanied him, and uh, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and uh, Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so we had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we, came, uh, we took him on board and went to Melitlin. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Our Father and our God, we ask now for your blessing to be added to the reading of your word. We pray that the Spirit of God would guide each one of us as we seek to learn and grow from this passage of Scripture that we have before us today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Sometimes as I'm uh, preparing to preach a particular text, uh, as I begin to look at it, usually early in the week, I think to myself, what in the world am I going to say about this passage? Uh, and this was one of those texts this week. There's a lot of locations mentioned. There's a lot of sailing from one place to the next. There's a guy that falls out of a window and dies. Uh, what do you say about all of that? How do you write a sermon on a passage uh, like this? And yet, as I began to study this more and think about it, read through it several times, pray through it, I began to sense a particular theme that was sticking out uh, all throughout the text, and that is the love of the Apostle Paul for the church, and we're going to see that as we go. Today's text covers quite a bit of ground. Several months of time pass uh, here in these verses. Paul is moving around quite a bit. You notice all of those different locations uh, that are mentioned. Aren't you all glad that I didn't make you read uh, every other verse like we do sometimes? Some of those are very hard to pronounce. Uh, as we talked about last week, Paul was planning at the end of chapter 19 to leave Ephesus. Uh, he had been there for three years. 
uh, planting the church there in Ephesus. And so he decided to leave and to head over to Macedonia and Achaia. And that's exactly what we see him do here in these first few verses. In verses 1 and 2, Paul leaves the city of Ephesus, uh, which is uh, right here in the province of Asia. He heads upward to Macedonia and then to Achaia. So this whole region is where uh, basically most of the text that we're going to read today takes place. He stops there at the churches in Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica, and then ultimately Corinth there in Achaia. And he's there, you remember, in order to finish up collecting a love offering that he is going to then bring back to the church at Jerusalem. And so we're tracking with Paul along this trip now. Uh, Acts 20, beginning with verse 1, says, After the uproar ceased, we talked about that last week, you remember the riot in Ephesus. So after all of that commotion was done, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And so now he's in the city of Corinth where he stops for a few months. And once again, we're going to approach the text today by considering the love of the Apostle Paul displayed for the church. We see it all throughout this passage, how Paul cared for and served these various churches. He loved his fellow Christians. He longed to see them growing in their faith and prospering spiritually. You might be tempted to think as we've gone through the book of Acts so far that Paul was just kind of a missional man focused on seeing the kingdom of Christ advanced across the world. And certainly that's true, but he was more than just a strategist. Paul was a very loving and affectionate man. And this comes out clearly as you read his letters in the rest of the New Testament. He talks about how he loves the people that he's writing to, how he longs to see them, how he prays for them every day. And here in Acts chapter 20, we get a glimpse into the heart of this apostle and his love for the church. And let me clarify just at the outset what I mean by love. I'm not saying that Paul simply had warm feelings uh, toward these people. I'm not even saying that Paul just uh, told them that he loved them, that he, he expressed that love. Rather, love is displayed by actions. It's not words or feelings. It's what you do. Here's Paul's own definition of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he writes that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is displayed by actions. According to the Apostle Paul in these verses, when you love someone, you'll be patient with them, you'll be kind to them, you won't insist on your own way. You'll show your love for others by your actions. And looking at the actions of the Apostle Paul in relation to the churches here in Acts chapter 20, we see the heart of love that he had for them. Paul's love for the church is seen first in his ministry of encouragement. Back to verse 1 of Acts 20, what we read a minute ago. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Again, in verse 2, when he had gone through the regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Everywhere that Paul was going on this trip, he was stopping at churches along the way and encouraging them. Uh, encourage there is the translation of the Greek word parakaleo, which means to call to one side. 
A paraclete is someone who is your aid, someone who walks with you and tries to help you. And that's what Paul was to these people. Even though they're scattered in different places in Turkey and in Greece, everywhere that he went, Paul was stopping and trying to encourage and help the churches. If you want a good definition of what encouragement means, uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Uh, Encouraging someone spiritually is building them up, edifying them in the Lord, helping them to grow spiritually. And that's what Paul did for these people. And here in Greece, he did this for several months. He stops in Corinth for a while. As verse 3 of our text says, he spent uh, three months there. Uh, And if you're wondering why, just read 1 Corinthians. Uh, They needed some help and some guidance. There were some issues going on there. And so Paul stops there, uh, presumably to help them through all of that. But then at the end of verse 3, it says, A plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. And so he decided to return through Macedonia. So again, on the map here, just so you can visualize this, uh, Paul is wanting eventually to get down to Jerusalem down here. And so uh, he's got to leave Corinth and head down to Jerusalem. And so this would be the, the straightest route would just be to go straight across the sea. But he, he learns of a plot against his life. People are trying to kill him. Uh, presumably they know, you know, there's only one ship going down to Corinth. We're going to meet him there, capture him, uh, something like that. And so Paul, instead of taking that route, he goes all the way back up through Macedonia and around again, kind of going, retracing his steps uh, in order to get down to Jerusalem eventually. And so he's going back the way that he came. And with him were several others, as verse 4 indicates. Uh, you see there the list of names. Uh, Sopater the Berean, a son of Phurus, accompanied him of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and uh, Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and of the Asians, Tychicus uh, and Trophimus. So you see different people from different places that are with Paul at this point. We'll explain that in a minute. Uh, verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Uh, You notice there in verse 6, all of a sudden the word we is back, uh, which means Luke is back, the one writing the book of Acts. Now he is uh, with the Apostle Paul once again. All throughout Paul's ministry, he's been picking up people and dropping them off at various places. Uh, He never wanted to to start a new church and then just leave them. He wanted them to be able to grow and thrive. And so he would uh, leave someone there, someone who was more mature in the faith, uh, to help lead and pastor those churches. And so after he started the church in Philippi back in Acts 16, Paul left Luke there uh, to pastor the church for about six years while Paul has been going around ministering to other places. He went to Corinth for two years Uh, traveled back to Antioch, stayed roughly a year there, and then these three years in Ephesus, and then there's some time in between traveling uh, and visiting some other churches. All that time for those years, Luke has been back in Philippi, teaching and leading the church there. And now he gets picked up by Paul, and they are reunited. And Luke is going to travel with Paul all the way to the end of the book of Acts when Paul is at Rome. Uh, and you'll see as we read through these, these last chapters of Acts, as we work through them here on Sundays, uh, the accounts become very detailed because Luke is now writing uh, from his personal experience. These are things that he was an eyewitness to. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, <clears throat> when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. 
And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And so now, once again, we see the love of Paul for this church at Troas. Uh, He is just passing through town. He's only there for a week. He's got to catch a ship and, and continue his travel. They're moving very quickly now, trying to get to Jerusalem by Passover. We'll see that mentioned at the end of the passage. But while he's in town here in Troas, Paul takes the time to meet with the church there. Uh, It's Sunday, and so the church is gathered on the Lord's Day, and Paul shows up. Uh, And we're even told that, that he's intending to leave the next morning. And yet, with that in mind, he stays there and he preaches all night. Uh, Most of us would have gone home and tried to get an early night's sleep uh, to prepare for a busy day of travel uh, the next day. But that wasn't Paul. He loved these people so much, and he wanted to help them, build them up, encourage them, and teach them. And so he shows up at this church in Troas, and verse 7 says, he prolonged his speech until midnight. Uh, Some of you you think I preach uh, too long. I mean, can you imagine Uh, Hour after hour, they're sitting there, and Paul just keeps teaching. And so after a while, the sun goes down. They start lighting some lamps uh, as it's getting dark in the room now. It's getting very late. Uh, Verse 8 says, there are many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And then verse 9 tells us about this young man uh, named Eutychus, which ironically means lucky. Uh, His name literally means lucky. Eutychus, he's sitting at the window Uh, He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Uh, Don't ever let yourself fall asleep at church. You might just die. So there, you've been warned. Uh, uh, Anyway, when I was in college, uh, people used to struggle all the time. I used to struggle too, staying awake during church. You had a busy schedule. Uh, We had college classes in the morning. You had work in the evenings and then ministry all weekend. And so by the time you get to church, you sit down in a heated room, a nice comfortable chair, very easy to doze off. And uh, guys that I worked with in college, they used to come up with all sorts of interesting ways to try to stay awake, especially the guys that worked third shift. Uh, They really struggled during church. And so some of them, they would just stand up in the back of the room, the whole sermon, because they knew if they sat down, they're going to fall asleep. And so they would, you'd see a a line of guys uh, standing in the back of the church. Uh, Other guys would have a rubber band around their wrist, and every time they felt themselves getting drowsy, they would snap it, and the sensation would kind of keep them awake. Uh, One guy came up with a really interesting idea. Uh, He took a little thumbtack, and he placed it under his leg, so in between the chair and and his leg. So he kind of had to keep his leg up on his toes the whole sermon. And if he started to fall asleep, his leg would fall a little bit, and he'd poke himself, and that that would wake him up. Uh, and that worked out okay until one time his plan uh, failed. Uh, he ended up with a blood stain on his pants because he was so tired that his leg just went right down into the thumbtack. Uh, he, he woke up and felt the moisture of the blood uh, on his leg. So anyway, n- none of that, though, compares to Eutychus. I mean, this guy has a story. Uh, he ends up dying uh, because he falls asleep during Paul's sermon. He's sitting kind of in the windowsill, not like this. You'd think of a, a much larger type of window where you could actually sit in it. And so he falls out of the open window area when he falls asleep. He falls down three stories to the ground, and he dies. Uh, Verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Now, some have said that Luke is telling us here uh, that Eutychus didn't actually die, that maybe the people just thought he was dead, uh, and Paul realized that he wasn't. Maybe he was just knocked unconscious or something like that. Others see this as a resurrection, and I think that that's more likely. 
Uh, Luke was a doctor, and he said Eutychus died. I don't think he would have said that uh, if he was merely knocked unconscious. Paul's statement is similar to things that Jesus said about uh, Jairus' daughter, for example. Right before he raises her from the dead, he says, you know, don't be alarmed, she's sleeping, she's going to wake up again. Uh, And so the language there doesn't really negate the possibility that this was a real miraculous resurrection. So Eutychus wakes up, he's fine, and verse 11 says, When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. So Paul goes right back upstairs and finishes teaching. All through the night, Paul taught this church at Troas. And so you see his love for the church is demonstrated by the fact that he used his gifting to teach in order to help and benefit the churches, even when he had a long day of travel ahead of him. He stayed up all night just to teach and instruct the brothers here at Troas and to build them up in their faith. Verse 12, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos. So he literally leaves teaching and just immediately, it's daybreak now, he goes right onto the ship, uh, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he, he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to uh, Metalene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the following day touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. Again, Luke is here for all of this journey, and so he's detailing uh, each place that they're stopping along the way. Uh, just so you can see this again on the map, he's going, <clears throat> uh, Troas is where he, he stayed up all night and taught, and then these are the various little cities that he's stopping at along his way, uh, eventually down to Jerusalem. And you see there that they're going kind of along the coast instead of in the mainland of Asia, uh, probably because it was a faster a trip due to the terrain. And so they're in a hurry trying to get to Jerusalem, and so they go along the coast there. Verse 16 says, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, uh, speaking of kind of in the mainland there, for he was hastening uh, to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so he chooses this route uh, because he's in a hurry, trying to get to Jerusalem quickly. Paul's love for the church is seen in this as well, his love for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Remember, as we saw last week, as we looked through the various letters of Paul uh, detailing his future plans from here, Paul's goal is to go to Rome and then eventually to Spain. Uh, That's his next mission field. He's wanting to go further west to those places. And yet he goes to Jerusalem first. Jerusalem is in the opposite direction of Rome and Spain. And so why is he doing this? Why is he going in this crazy route all the way back down to Jerusalem? Well, as we found out when we looked at those letters of Paul, he's on his way to Jerusalem in order to bring a financial gift uh, to the church there. He hears that the church is struggling. And so he's been for years collecting finances from the various churches. He's been working uh, his tent-making job throughout this whole time, supporting himself financially uh, and contributing to this fund. And for all these years now, he's going from church to church in Galatia and then in Macedonia and Achaia, and he's collecting uh, all of this money from those churches in order to bring it back to Jerusalem and to give it to the church there that he knows is struggling. Uh, Talk about loving the church. Uh, Paul travels all of this way in the opposite direction of where he wants to go just to bring this money to the church at Jerusalem. And so as you read about him going from this town to the next town, sailing over here, going to this next place, All of those details are showing us 
the tremendous effort uh, Paul went through just to be a help to this church in Jerusalem and to bring financial support to them. Uh, One more way that we see Paul's love for the church in verse 4. Uh, We read through this quickly earlier. I want to go back now and explain what's happening here. You see all of those names in verse 4. Sopater, the Berean, son of Phurus, of the Thessalonians. Then you have uh, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius of Derbe, Timothy. And then then of the Asians, you have Tychicus and Trophimus, probably from Ephesus. As we find out in the letters of Paul, and again, we're not going to take time now to, to chase down all these references, but these people... Paul is taking along with him as representatives of the contributing churches, all those churches that gave financially and are sending this money down to Jerusalem. Paul has been taking like basically one person from each church uh, with him as representatives, and they're going to come down with him to Jerusalem and present the money to the church. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's trying to bring together uh, the Gentile church and the Jewish church uh, all together, trying to draw them, to unite them. Uh, to love one another. And what better demonstration of love than to have them come with him to Jerusalem to meet the Christians there, uh, the Jewish brothers, in person and to present this gift. We'll cover this next section uh, next time, but I just want to show you this this one part, uh, once again, that shows us the heart of love that Paul had for the church. While Paul is at Miletus, uh, passing quickly through, trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost, He stops there and he calls for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come and meet him. And he gives them some last-minute instructions. They say their goodbyes. And uh, look at what Luke tells us about this meeting. Verse 36, again, we're going to get to this next time. Uh, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. You see in those verses that Paul loves these people, uh, and they loved him. He poured his life into this church. For three years, Paul had served this church in Ephesus, never taking a paycheck, by the way, the entire time. Uh, He was bivocational, just trying to help and serve this church and to get it established. He taught every day in the hall of Tyrannus. He devoted three years of his life to these people. And what's amazing about the heart of Paul is that he did this with multiple churches throughout his life, all scattered around. He would spend time with each one, sometimes serving them for periods of years, and then going to the next city and doing it all over again. I want us now to just look at a few passages of Scripture together as we close and make some final applications, thinking about how we ought to love the church. Again, not just in words or in feelings of affection, but in our actions. Uh, how can we follow the example of Paul in committing, to, uh, committing our lives to the church and loving the church? We're going to just go kind of rapid fire through these verses. We'll stop at the end uh, and make application from them. So hang on. First uh, John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so there you see very clearly it is characteristic of true Christians that we would love one another. So much so that John says, if you don't love one another, if you don't love your fellow brothers in Christ, you do not know God. First John 3.18, he, he defines love. 
He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So again, there's an emphasis on our actions. That when we say we ought to love one another, it doesn't just mean we hug each other and we say I love you and we feel warm feelings. No, we actually act. There's, there's deeds behind it. There's actions of love that demonstrate the love that we have for one another. Uh, over in Ephesians 5, Paul is giving instructions to husband and wives, and he says to them, uh, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice that last phrase there. Jesus loves the church. Jesus gave himself up for the church. He died for the church. We ought to love what Jesus loves. We ought to give our lives for the thing that Jesus gave his life for. Ephesians 4, verse 11, he gave them apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so Paul is saying in those verses, uh, one of the reasons that the church exists is so that we could help one another uh, to grow spiritually, to mature in our faith, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every uh, wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So each one of us in the church has a responsibility uh, to contribute uh, to the overall spiritual growth of others in the church. It's not just uh, the pastors and the teachers helping the congregation to grow. No, all of the saints are supposed to be working together, are supposed to be helping the whole body to grow. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to disciple one another. We're to help each other be be built up and to grow spiritually. Uh, Last passage, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is another feature of being a part of a church is that, you know, the New Testament knows nothing of a lone Christian. Uh, We're not supposed to be living the Christian life apart from others, uh, just trying to grow on our own. No, no. We're supposed to be stirring up each other. We're supposed to be provoking one another to love God and to do good works. Not neglecting, verse 25, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect the meeting of the church. Uh, Be there when your church is meeting. Be there to encourage and to serve and to benefit one another. So in light of all of those passages we just read, the church is a big deal. And it ought to be demonstrably important in our lives. And so here are some questions I think we ought to ask ourselves uh, concerning how how can I do this practically? How can I serve and love the church? How important is the church to you? How committed are you to the church? Uh, Our tendency is to be consumers rather than contributors. We come to church expecting to be served rather than to serve. Uh, We want to be encouraged, and we don't often think about how we could encourage someone else. And I want each of us right now to think of how we could, like Paul, pour ourselves into the lives of other Christians. How could we better love 
and serve one another. Uh, here are a few criteria to consider in regards to your involvement, your love for the church. And again, right now, let me encourage you, uh, don't think of somebody else. Uh, think of yourself. Ask yourself, how am I contributing to the life of the church? How am I serving my church? Uh, here are four simple categories to consider, all of which flow uh, out of the passage here in Acts 20 we've looked at today. Number one, attendance. Uh, this is pretty obvious, uh, but you're not loving the church very well if you're hardly ever there. Uh, obvious exceptions, of course, we understand sometimes health fails and prevents you from being there. Uh, there's, there's instances like that. But if you're just not meeting together because you don't feel like it, uh, that's exactly what Hebrews says not to do. Don't neglect to meet together with the church. <clears throat> Number two, caring for one another. Uh, how can I love my church? By actually caring for the individual members of the church. Do you love the people here? Uh, by the way, you can't love people well that you don't know very well. That's why I love to see after the service people hanging around and talking. Uh, sometimes people are praying together. Uh, all of that is a very good sign of health in the church. <clears throat> it's, I love seeing people uh, helping somebody in the church move or inviting them over for a meal. Uh, things like that. Just thinking about ways that you can love one another, get to know each other, and really be a family. Uh, we've seen throughout our text today Paul's affection for the churches. It's so obvious that he loved these people. He cared for their needs. He did everything that he could to help them. Number three, how can you love your church? By contributing financially. Again, we see this in our text as Paul encourages others to give financially to help the struggling church in Jerusalem. And they weren't just giving to their own church, they were actually giving to another church. Uh, talk about generosity. And here's a question for you to consider in regards to your giving. This is very practical. I hope you'll forgive me. How would our church do if everyone gave just like you? Uh, think about that. Think about how much you gave uh, last month, how much you contributed to the church. Uh, for some of you, that may be nothing. Uh, for some of you, it might be $20. For others, it might be $200, whatever it is. Think of the number uh, what did you contribute in the last month? And ask yourself, if everyone in this room gave as much as you did, would our church be able to pay our bills? Uh, Paul was willing, in this case in Ephesus, to go get a job in addition to being a pastor just to help uh, serve and support the church at Ephesus for these three years. He labored at work at a normal uh, job during the day, and then he taught in the church in the afternoons. And he did that for three years. That's a major sacrifice uh, on, on the part of Paul. And sometimes that kind of sacrifice is required just to meet the practical financial needs of a church. Of course, I understand not everyone has the same financial situation. Not everybody's able-bodied. You can't all just go get a job right now. Uh, totally get that. But still, I think it's worth considering the question, does my financial giving to the church demonstrate that the church is a priority in my life? And I'll leave you to evaluate your own giving and decide the answer to that question. Number four, how you can love your church by using your gifts. We're going to spend a little bit more time unpacking this one. Paul displayed this by his teaching. That was his main gift, uh, was, was teaching the word of God and preaching and encouraging. We saw him in Troas all through the night, teaching the church there. He was only in town for that one uh, Sunday, and so he just gave himself uh, that whole day to their benefit. Paul was always using his gifts in teaching to benefit and build up the church. And Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, and he says that all of us have spiritual gifts. 
Uh, Yours may not be teaching like Paul, but you have a role to play in the life of the church. The gifts and the abilities that God has given to you are not actually meant to be given to you. They're supposed to be given through you. Uh, All of our spiritual gifts, our God-given abilities, are given to us to benefit the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, Paul writes, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's the purpose that we have these abilities. God has given us certain skills, and we are to use those skills to benefit the whole body. Uh, The the goal is for the common good, that the whole church uh, would be edified through our abilities. Over in Romans 12, Paul lists out what some of these types of abilities are, and I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list, but here are some examples of the kinds of things we're talking about. He says in verse 4, As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there you see kind of a, get an idea of the types of things that Paul is talking about. Some people in the church, your role is to teach. You've been given that gift. Uh, And that may be one-on-one discipling or it may be teaching like I'm doing right now. Uh, Some of you are gifted in more service ways. Uh, You have gifts and abilities to fix things or to design things or uh, whatever it may be. Maybe your gifts are serving in other ways, like cleaning the church building, maintaining facilities. Uh, Maybe you're a real people person and you can benefit the church by inviting people to come join us or just being a friend, uh, welcoming those who come into our door, being there to greet them. Some people in the church are gifted encouragers or exhorters. You're good at uh, being a friend to others in the church, and that's your, your role. Others have the gift of contributing. As Paul says, if you do that, do so generously. Uh, some are gifted to lead and to teach. Others are gifted to serve and to encourage. What other your, whatever your gifts are, uh, the point is, use them in the service to the church. And as we go into our time of prayer today, I want each, each of us uh, to think about what we could do practically to help benefit the body of Christ. What are your gifts? What are your abilities? Uh, what could you do to, to serve the body of Christ, to help others grow spiritually? Uh, could you someday stand up and teach a sermon? Uh, could you serve in practical ways with the facilities? Could you give more financially? Could you befriend people in the church, be an encourager to others? Uh, let's each of us ask God to speak to our hearts and direct us uh, toward what, what he would have us to do to prioritize and love the church.